0: Beauty of having your Bible in electronic format because you can like switch between the fifty odd translations that you have available to you. All right, praise the Lord. Disagree with me in prayer, Amen. Father, thank you so much for the Word of God. Father, we just look to you this evening. We ask for a special blessing tonight. God, you're a God of blessings. Hallelujah. And you're not a, a person that would favor any one person over another. You just respond to faith, oh God. It doesn't matter the person. And we just thank you, Father. That we declare by that we are people expecting tonight to receive from the word of God tonight in the name of Jesus. By way of the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher. And God, I just yield my members unto you. Holy Ghost, take my members and use them as you can. And just bring glory unto the Father and unto his Christ tonight in the name of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that no evil, Father, can befall us or disaster come near us. We're in covenant with you, Almighty God. And we're grateful, Father, that we are people that will not allow your anointing, your presence, your person to be manipulated, controlled, or brought under any agenda except your own, God. In the name of Jesus, right now. so we just dispel every spirit, everything that would try to work to distract or to tire or to bring uh, confusion. We just thank you, Father, for perfect peace tonight. In the name of Jesus, nothing missing, nothing broken. Amen. Put my gum right there. Don't let me forget about it. Okay. um, So we're going to endeavor... In the next two weeks, to finish up what we were talking about, everyone just come right on in. We're talking about restoring David's temple and some of the concepts thereof. We're not really covering the full theological seminary approach of David's tabernacle to give you that. The ad nauseum perspective of everything that's there. This seems a little bit hot to me, Omid. I want to back off this a little bit. Um. I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous Wednesday nights uh, podcasts uh, because we ha- they are available by, by podcast and MP3 on our website ncfok.org. Go to listen now. I think is is what it's called, and then you can see the the podcast and/or the MP3 files available for the previous services. I'm I'm gonna cut. I am gonna back up just a little bit because I felt like I kind of rushed through a little bit of things, and the Holy Ghost gave me some more with respect to some of the lessons as we are we are endeavoring to get to the installation of the ark in david's tabernacle and you can see all this um i started to say chronicled but and no no pun intended but i guess it is in first chronicles <laughs> and uh it, particularly verses 15 through about 17 or chapters 15 through 17 and then uh, first uh, samuel as well um I kind of go through things pretty quickly and don't give you a lot of chance to to follow along in the Word. You'll need to do that on your own. Okay? Uh, there are some verses I'll point out and have you look at them with me, but most of the time we're going right through things very quickly. And so I want to, I want to just go back and I want to hit and and highlight again some of the uh, issues as it pertains to the establishment of David's tabernacle. And again, please go back and listen to the previous messages for the the events leading up to this place. But you can see this chronicled in Second Samuel chapter 6. And we can see that, you know, um, the ark of God, which represents the presence of God with his people, represents his anointing, his glory, okay, among the people. Having been out of its rightful context in the tabernacle, Of Moses at the time, the Mosaic Tabernacle, having been pulled out of that context and in fact captured by the enemy and brought under their subjection for a while, then sent back because judgment came upon the enemy because of the presence of the living God trying to be controlled and manipulated and put before the presence of Dagon, who represents idolatry, okay? And we talked about how idolatry really is the number one issue to look at whenever the presence of the living God is not strong among you. Whenever the presence of the living God and the anointing appears to be under some element of control, you need to look at one thing first, and that is where are the idols? Do you remember that? We discussed that last week. Um, It's very, very important. And there was a couple other things to look at, but... Get rid of the idols. Dedicate yourselves to God and worship him alone. Those were the top three things. That's what uh, Samuel instructed the people to do when they came to the place that they realized after 20 years. Hey, you know what? I believe we need to get back to having the presence of God working on our behalf and restored in our midst again. And that was those were the three things he told them to do. So anyway, so we pass through all that. And we're up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we see David comes to a place now after he's been installed as king, if you will, and he had already been anointed. Man, there's a lot of lesson, a lot of prophetic symbolism, and a lot of things that we can learn in the journey of David. Did you realize that David, we talked about, we started this whole thing off talking about the importance of David. Well, what was it about David? Y'all remember some of those things, some of that discussion, those of y'all that have been with me all these weeks, we've talked about this uh, lesson, taught on this lesson. Did you realize that of all the characters in the Old Testament there's really none that is chronicled more than David? I'm talking about more than Moses, more than Abraham, more than Jacob, more than Isaac, more than than Isaiah. There's 66 chapters in the Bible dedicated to talking about David. I mean there's so, so I mean there's a reason for this folks because when I look at a person like Abraham, my goodness When you stop and think about Abraham and the fact that the original covenant was cut with him and that he, you know, and then look at, and he was a friend of God. That's what the Bible says. Abraham was a friend, and that is a covenant term. Abraham enjoyed a position of relationship with God nobody else had ever really enjoyed to that place. And then Moses, face-to-face with God is what the word says, knew God face-to-face, saw things no one had ever seen up to that time. Y'all know what I'm saying? But yet you only see about a dozen to 15 chapters actually talking about the literal life of Moses and or Abraham. But when you get to David, it's like 60 plus chapters of the Bible devoted to his life. There's a reason for this, I think, folks, because there's a lot to be learned about about the type of person that God chooses to carry out his work and to anoint to do his work. About the type of person that really in character that really ministers to God. When you devote that many chapters in the Bible to talking about the history of a person's life, I think there's something that lends credibility to his importance. Would anyone agree with me? And what is, it said, what is it said about David? He was what? A man after God's heart. And so whenever you see 66 chapters of the Bible devoted to someone, I think we can learn a little bit about what it means to be a person after God's heart. Okay, that's all I'm trying to say. A little bit of a side journey there, but I think it's something that we can learn from. Spend some time looking at David, and that's what we've done over this study. Spent time looking at, at, at David and the approach of him bringing the being the chosen one to bring back and restore the presence of God in the midst of the people. So we see in Second Samuel chapter six, David and his young army here, and it says in in one account, thirty thousand or so odd young men, and it talks about young men uh went and he he gathered them together it says in one place that he said he called the whole of Israel but then it says in another place that he got 30,000 young men to go and do this with him okay he decide, he, he his heart is right folks his intentions are right his desire is correct he wants the restoration of the presence of the living god among the people again That he would be exalted to the highest place. That he would have the context of utter and supreme power and leadership again restored in the people, among the people. That was correct. That was a right goal. His eyes were on the right prize. Amen? And so he gets together no small number of people to go and do this. And they're representing the entire nation. Okay, but it says young men. I want you to take notice of that in Second uh, Samuel six, I believe it's verse one. It said, um, and so so here's something to learn about. <clears throat> okay, so anyway, so David and his young men go to bring up the ark, and then we know that they that something went wrong. They handled the process incorrectly. They had the right motive, they had the right intent, the right goal, the eyes were on the right prize, but they did it the wrong way. And it resulted in the same thing that happened whenever the presence of the living God was actually under enemy capture in Dagon's temple. That happened when it was at Kiriath Jerem or when it happened in the other, the first place it passed through for what's Kiriath Jerem. I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over again because the, they did not honor, they did not honor the Lord through obedience. Simple obedience. We're going to learn about that in just a minute. They handled it wrongly. Abinadab's sons were chosen to guide the ark upon a cart, and Uzzah or Uza or however you want to say it, he was the dude that reached out whenever the oxen stumbled and the and the uh, ark began to be shaken and appeared to be coming off that cart. He reaches out and correctly, uh, we don't want God to fall. We don't want the presence of the living God, the symbol of his power amongst us, to fall or to be compromised and come off this uh, this uh, cart here. He reaches out to steady it and in the process becomes consumed and dies, stricken dead right there. I mean, in front of everybody. I mean, just immediately consumed. And... um, So then, so then we see here through this process that it doesn't matter what the heart's intentions are. Regardless of the heart, regardless of the intentions, God's presence wasn't handled correctly. It was not secured properly and in the right order and in accordance with His Word and His direction. Obedience wasn't complete. And, in, and so we learned several lessons here, the first of which is that I, and this is where the Holy Ghost gave me some additional insight on this from from where we talked about this very quickly last time, toward the end of the lesson. but that it says that David assembled a team of able young men. You know what? There's nothing wrong with strong, able, young men and or women involved in the process of what we're doing. But you should never take off into ministry without the wisdom and maturity of the older generation right alongside with them. Amen, mature saints? That's issue number one right off the bat. I see that was wrong with this. And I know David's mindset. I know his soul because you can see the exploits of his of of his life leading up to this, and you know what it was warfare. And you needed able-bodied young men to go and conduct that warfare. You needed the the young, virile, strong, and 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 enduring physical bodies to be able to hold up under that constant procession of one thing after the next, warring against those people. And it said that talks about David's mighty men and the people that fought with him valiantly, people of great honor, men of incredible honor and integrity of character and dedication to David. And it said though he assembled this team of young men, about 30,000 odd young men. It said, but the, the problem is, Again, we don't want, we, he, I think one of the first mistakes he made was it doesn't appear that he took the wise folks along, the wisdom along with the strength. Physically. And you know, the thing is, is that in today's culture, you know, Pastor CJ brought this out several weeks back. There is such a strong tendency and even now more than ever before to literally worship youth. To put such a focus on youth and the virility of youth and the looks of youth and the strength of youth and the vigor of youth almost really to the expense and exclusion of the old folks. Amen or oh me? Would anybody agree with this? It is an absolute fact, folks. Youth is what is the prize for for today's generation. It's not the wisdom, the stability, the maturity of, of of saints that have been brought through the fiery trials of life and have not given up, but have remained faithful. It's the look, the 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 handsomeness, the beauty, the virility. Let's add all the adjectives you want to add to this process here in describing youth. Youthful appearance, youthful ability, vigor, energy, ability to stay up all night and go to work the next day, whatever the case might be. And it's all about putting the emphasis on that. And, this, and the sad reality is in ministry it's happening. It's happened for a long time. It's like youth is where it's at. we got to get youth in here, and we do need to get youth in here, but we better keep the wise and the older and mature folks right along with the process here. Because that's the backstop, that is the foundation, that is the ability to to keep a check and a balance on things. So things like this don't happen, folks. Number two lesson, zeal and excitement can never replace simple obedience. I don't care how much zeal consumes you in the process of your service to God. I don't care how much you're excited and how much you look forward to serving the living God and doing the things that he's asked you to do. If you don't follow through with what he's asked you to do, zeal does not replace that. And in fact, you'll reap the same results you would reap as if you disobey, as if you rebelled against God. Disobedience is the same as that. You see what I'm saying? I mean you could have a great attitude everything's right but but if you don't follow I don't care how much joy you have in your life how happy a person you are how nice you are how much courtesy you offer that officer when he pulls you over for going 15 over in a in a speed zone of 45 and you're going 60 miles an hour in a 45 and it's a construction zone so it's double the double the penalty I don't care how much you 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 can engender a a, a a a trust between you and that officer of your character and integrity for everything else as it pertains to the law, you disobey that law. You transgress that law, and there's a penalty to be paid for that. I don't think we understand this when it comes to spiritual laws. It's the same thing, folks. It's no different. It's the same. There are authorities in the spirit as there are in the natural. There are consequences in the spiritual realm as there are in the natural for disobeying laws. And so it doesn't matter the attitude and so forth. I mean, what does it say? Ignorance is no excuse of the law. It doesn't matter that you didn't know about it. If you transgress the law, you will pay the penalty. I know that sounds terrible, but that's just the truth of it. Zeal and excitement can never replace simple obedience. Number 3, David did not use the right people. He got 30,000 odd young men and yeah, there were priests and Levites in amongst them, but he did not understand and know the correct people, the right even the right tribe, much less the right clan of that tribe that were supposed to handle the ark. And so he just takes people down there and then he ends up using, uh, you know, the right clan of Le- it was the tribe of Levi, and it was the clan of the, the Kohathites. Those were the only people that God ordained to actually physically carry the ark. It wasn't just any old Levite; it was the tri- it was the clan of the tribe of Levi called the Kohathites. And so he didn't use the right people. You know, they weren't of the right clan. And the people that he ended up using, they might have been of Levi. They might have been of the right tribe. They weren't of the right clan. At least best of what we can see from the word. They were the sons of Abinadab whose brother Eleazar had just been consecrated and guarded the ark for 20 years previous up to this point. And so you know it's 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 Uzzah and Ahio; those are the two guys, man, that get chosen to. And I I don't know why David chose them. The word isn't clear that I can see as to why they were chosen. I think they were chosen because they lived with the ark for twenty years. And it was like, oh, well, you guys, man, you you guys have been with the presence of God for twenty years. If there's anybody amongst us that knows what to do, you guys are probably going to know how to handle and conduct yourselves. So you guys be the one to attend the ark as we're putting it on the cart and taking it back. It was wrong, folks. They weren't the right people. It might look good. It might smell good. It might taste good. It might feel good, but it ain't right. No matter all the senses, how, they're, how they are fulfilled, it don't matter. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And they were wrong. David was wrong in allowing those two men, those two guys to do that. And then that leads me to another question. Something the Holy Ghost showed me. Where's Eliezer in all this? My goodness, that guy was actually consecrated to guard the ark for 20 years. Why wasn't he one of the guys? Why was it Uzzah in Ohio? Why wasn't Eliezer in Uzzah? Eliezer in Ohio. Or Eliezer and the other two guys with them. Why wasn't all three of them? I got to wonder. I mean, now this does say Greg, now because the word's not clear on this, okay? But in my mind, in my heart's mind, I think to myself, Eleazar was actually consecrated to guard the ark. He was set apart and they anointed him to do that service in abed household. And you gotta wonder if Eleazar in that 20 years might have learned something about the ark. Again, this is Thus saith Greg, y'all. I don't see this in the word, but it just, you just gotta wonder. Maybe Eleazar knew something that us in Ohio didn't come to learn. He didn't, he may have decided he didn't want no part of that deal. <laughs> because he knew, he knew he wasn't the one that was supposed to be moving that ark. Now he'd been consecrated and, and by the Lord's, uh, uh, you know, tolerance for the, for the inappropriateness of the whole thing in, the, in general context to be able to guard it for 20 years. But maybe he came to the place that he had such a respect and honor for that presence. He knew that he was already walking on thin ice as it was anyway. to serve 20 years in a guardianship position uh, of the presence of God outside of its rightful context in the temple or the tabernacle. Y'all see that? I don't know. That's just a question that came to me, occurred to me. Perhaps he knew something. I don't know. It's thus saith Greg now. Y'all take that into consideration. Something that I think can be learned from that. Number five, the poles had been removed. We talked about this last week, but I want to bring up a little bit more about that they had been removed and the poles were never to be removed the ark was destined to be carried by men not on a cart not on the back of animal flesh on the shoulders which represents prophetically strength stability ability to do to carry they they were supposed to carry the ark on their shoulders and there was two poles One on one side, one on the other that went through these four rings on the ark. And there was two, uh, uh, Levites in the front, two in the back. So there was four total guys that were supposed to carry the ark. And so they're carrying, they're supposed to bear up and carry the presence of the living God with them. Not on the back of animal flesh. Certainly not on the back of a cart being pulled by animal flesh. So the poles had been removed, and that represents the proper and correct way that it was supposed to be transported. So right off the bat, that was forfeit. They, they they were they were moving the ark incorrectly off the bat because they didn't they, the poles that were never supposed to be removed weren't even there. Number six, it ended up on a cart, which is representative of boards and big wheels. And we talked about this last week, and I got this from Perry Stone, and I thought it was awesome. A card is nothing but a bunch of boards and big wheels. And the perspective from that prophetically is we got a bunch of churches that are run by boards and big wheels trying to carry and move the presence of the living God and manipulate and control what happens with it. I'm not talking about NCF. I'm just saying in general, there's so much of what happens in today's religiosity that is exactly archetypically represented in the cart here. Boards and big wheels. Big wheels, you all see what I'm saying, representing people that think they're big stuff? That think they have a position and ability to control money that goes into things, to control power and influence on people that goes into the decisions made? Big wheels, That's what a card is. It's boards and big wheels. And then the boards, of course, representing uh, groups of men and women that are together in making decisions on things. Trying to control and manipulate and carry the presence of God. And not in obedience the way he's called it. I'm just saying there's there's a good prophetic symbolism there, I believe. That we have to watch out for. The boards and the big wheels. To carry the anointing. To move the anointing. And if you get right down to it, folks, David he he just went ahead and used the cart because guess what? That's what had been used all the way up until the time it ended up at Obed Edom's house. Or I mean at uh Kirith Jerum. And who started that? Pagans. Pagans were the first one to put the ark on a cart and send it off. Huh? it's a truth, man. It was the, it was the pagans that sent it off, man. Whenever they're, they got, you know, all the, the five different uh, uh, cities of theirs got ruined, you know, with tumors and rats and all that stuff that was happening because they were, they had the presence of the living God amongst them. They decided they, they gotta get rid of this and send it back. So they put it on a cart. You, you back up in the, in the scripture, you can read this account. They put it on a cart that was led by two milk cows that had just given birth to calves, took their calves away from them and then let the mama cows take off. And if it goes back to Beth Shemesh, then we know that, that we're doing the right thing. And it went, they went down the road lowing all the way to Beth Shemesh carrying the presence of God with them, you know. So pagans were the one that started that whole concept of carrying it on the ark. we got to be careful about how we model what we do in the church after the things of the world. I mean, there's a lot of prophetic symbolism there, in my view. We've got to be careful of that. Adopting ways of the world, ways of things that have nothing to do with God, to move God in the process of what we're doing. It ain't going to work, folks. I like to use improper English to emphasize things. It ain't going to work. And we can see it modeled here so beautifully. Attempts to control and to manipulate or selflessly use the anointing or presence of God, I'm going to tell you, they don't end well. According to what we see here in the scripture, they don't end well. So the procedure or process, in this case, the oxen, they stumbled. That's what the scripture says. It says the oxen stumbled. It says the ark appeared to make a move. That's when Uzzah reaches out to steady the present the ark. But that procedure or process came to a place that it stumbled. And this, though, led to David's quick retreat to seek the Lord's process. So it was a good thing. You know, there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about in the latter days that there will be a shaking like no other in the church, in, in the things of uh, the people of God, in the in the midst of, of, of the family, if you will, and such that that shaking will be so violent to the place that it will shake until the only thing that's left are the things that can't be shaken anymore. And I feel like that we've seen a lot of shaking lately, and I don't believe the shaking has stopped. And I'm not a doom and gloom prophetic person. But, you know, truth is truth. At the same time, we still got a lot of stuff that needs to be shaken out of our midst, folks. For the presence of God to increase in our midst. For us to be able to move and, and to have restored and to have in our midst the strength and glory and weight of God to the point that the ministers can't minister anymore. That, that, that the blind eyes open, that the deaf ears open, that the flame of fire comes up on top of this building to the place that it serves a beacon, like the city on the hill, for all to see that and get drawn into the anointing of God and the streams that will restore people unto eternal life. Hallelujah. But before that can happen, we gotta have some shaking taking place. And that's what happened. You see the process of the oxen shaking. That's what the scripture said. And that, that then through that process, a, bad, a terrible thing happened. But then a wonderful thing happened, because it forced David to repentance. David, who was responsible, who was the leader of the whole thing, it forced him to a place that at first he was angry with God. Oh, how, how, how could you do this? You know, he 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 said. You know, I can just hear his his heart in that. I can hear what his heart could say. <clears throat> That's right. So then, you know, when you see that and you see us consumed as he reaches out to try, and really what it is, it's, it's God saying, you will not control my presence. You will not control and manipulate my anointing. You are, your hands are not those that are called to stabilize my presence. Amen. That's, that's what I see in that prophetically from perspective of us being consumed in that. The process stumbling and then we see that terrible thing happen. But then what it leads to is David's quick retreat and, and seeking the Lord's process for three months after he, after the thing goes to Obed Edom's house. But see, I, I have to ask a question. What about today? What are the implications of something like this today? Because I think a lot of people don't think God's the same. I think our perspective of God is almost one of Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament God who manifests Himself sovereignly among the people to demonstrate His miraculous ability and His ability to deliver, but His ability for, for fire and judgment to, to the New Testament of just only grace and you know and mercy, and that is our God. Yes and amen. That is our God amen but he's the same God as he was back then. if the Bible says that he's a jealous God back then he's a still a jealous God and in fact the scripture in the New Testament talks about the spirit within us yearns you know it, it, you know it tends to jealousy. well that's the spirit of God in us tending to the desire to have relationship and fellowship with us over all the other things that tear us away. Amen. Hallelujah. Over all the other things that we let tear us away. But anyway, so I say, what about today? And then I brought up a couple of examples. Ananias and Sapphira. There is a perfect example of the strong presence of God in the midst of people. The flow of the anointing, the flow of his presence in such a manner to where Ananias and Sapphira, if you don't know about this story, end up consumed because of their lying to the Holy Ghost. You know, I mean, that's what Peter said. He said, you you ain't lied to us. You lied to the Holy Ghost. You know, and then they ended up consumed. Y'all remember this story in the New Testament? You know, what about, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 11? You know, th- these are just two examples that came to my mind. But Paul talks about how the Corinthian church didn't rightly discern the Lord's body. And that has to do, in my mind, thus saith Greg, from the perspective of relationships. People not discerning the Lord's body, literally, from a perspective of how they're not loving each other, choosing each other, trying to do what they can to to live at peace and to, to promote one another over themselves. That doesn't happen. And it says, you're not rightly discerning the Lord's body. And it says, because of that, that is why in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. He says, that is why... Why? Because you've not rightly discerned the Lord's body. And I know a lot of us would look at that and it's like, well, because they took communion incorrectly. Well, that, that, yes, they did take it incorrectly, but there's a larger revelation and it comes down to relationship, relational issues, because they weren't preferring one another. They were coming in selfishly in the process of a covenant meal and they were consuming the, the elements of that from a selfish perspective. At the, at at the, at the, at the disregard for their fellow brother and sister. Anyway, it goes on deeper than that, but you can see that's, that's, that's the same Bible I read that every one of you all read, I hope. Same scriptures. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30 and you can see this. When it says many of you have fallen asleep, he's not talking about people laying down and snoring. He's talking about people dying a physical death. I'm not preaching doom and gloom now because I am not one of those kind of people. But at the same time, the Word of God is the Word of God. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think our perspective and our... And here's what it comes down to. In in, in uh, 1 Samuel there uh, 6, 9, 2 Samuel 6, 9, David, through this process, he learned the fear of the Lord. If you look in in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, you will read that David learned the fear of the Lord. At first, when Uzzah gets consumed, he gets angry at God. He's like, God, what are you doing? I came down here to restore your presence among the people. You know my heart, God. Look upon me. You know my ways. You know that my intentions are right in this. So help me, God. What would you do to consume... Consume this man who's just trying to keep you, keep the order of what's happening here. Keep things right. Keep things straight. And you consume him. So we then see David go through anger, and then he flashes to, 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 you know, to thought and questioning. And then I think the reality of the fear of God hit him. Y'all see that? In verse 9, then it talks about him. All of a sudden, the fear of God consumed him. And I don't mean fear of God like, oh, I'm going to be consumed under your hand if I don't do things right. I think the fear of God from a perspective of, oh, God, I've I got to realize that above all, i got to be fully obedient to what you've said to do. And I did not seek that counsel before I came down here. And because of my disobedience, this is why this has happened. So, God, i got to have your counsel. So then you... I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Because here's the lesson. We need to learn to fear the Lord more than we've ever feared Him before. I'm talking about a worshipful, reverential, honoring of God to the place that when you come in here, you realize that the presence... You're expecting the presence of God to the place that you don't want anything to compromise that potential. You don't want anything in your life to block that potential to inhibit it, to try to be like Uzzah and control it or manipulate it. Do something out of order. We need to learn the fear of the Lord before we can expect his presence to increase among us and thank God for his mercy because folks, we don't want his presence to increase among us till we grow in some of these areas. I don't know about you, but I don't want people to get sick and weakly and fall asleep. I don't want people to be consumed like Uzzah. I don't want that kind of a situation to take place in our midst. Do y'all? y'all I mean, is this registering with anybody? I mean, is this right or wrong or what? Bart tells me this is right because what it's doing is it's driving us to a place of correct reverence and honor for the presence of God. He's not just a side helping to our plate of of the of the uh, things of life, folks. He's not as helping of, of of mashed potatoes and gravy. He's not a helping even of the best sweet corn you've ever had in your life. He's not just a piece of. Uh, he's not one rib of the twelve rib combo or twelve meat combo that you get down here at Rib Crib. Folks, he is the, he should be the entire plate from start to finish of everything we are seeking to consume. Amen or oh me? Okay. Let's make sure you're with me. Hallelujah. So the thesis, if you really want to get down to it, all this that we've talked about for weeks, the thesis, the crux, the, the, the principle of what we have discussed in terms of boiling it down to the residue is really this. This, the thesis of this journey is really learning about and restoring honor and reverence for the presence of the living God. That's really what it comes down to. If you want to f- f- boil it down to one punchline, all this stuff we've talked about, that's really what it comes down to. Learning about. Because those folks did not know, it says that the word of the Lord was rare among them, and, and prophetic uh, words was was hardly ever seen among their presence, among the people. And so, what it comes down to is, you first of all have to learn about stuff. My people perished for what? Lack of knowledge. Those people perished for lack of knowledge, for ignorance. So it's learning about, and then once you learn about them, then learning what it takes to restore the integrity of honor and reverence for the presence of the living God. And if you consider the ark in its rightful context, you can learn a lot here. Because if you stop and think about where the ark was compared to where it should have been and where it always was up to that place, there was a, the ark wasn't just done or carried any old way. The ark wasn't just in place any old place. The ark wasn't just uh, brought about in any old manner. The ark was carried by only one clan of the tribe of Levi. The ark was only carried on the shoulders of those people by two poles that went through it and were never removed. And in fact, when they moved the ark, they had to cover it with three coverings such that no one ever looked upon the ark... When they removed it from, guess what? It's rightful place in the Mosaic Tabernacle, which was the third and inner chamber of the tabernacle called the most holy place. that only one man who was anointed and who went through all the ceremonial washings and consecrated himself in exacting accordance with the word of God could go in only one time a year, folks, to minister before that presence. And here that ark has been pulled out of that context And now it's out live just before. It's like a live wire. It's just out before the presence of people, wheresoever it goes, for people to gaze upon it, for people to potentially touch it, for people like the the people at Beth Shemesh to open it up and look inside and 50,000 people are consumed. So I'm just saying it comes down to the integrity of honor and esteem for the presence of the living God and when you consider the context of the ark and how out of context the ark is in this story man you can learn a lot here the ark in this story represents god's presence outside of all of this and it's never been there before from the time it was started at mount sinai whenever they could, whenever god gave the instruction to even make the ark And everything about what God does is symbolic of something. Every single thing. Right down to how the ark was constructed and its dimensionality. The fact that it was both gold and wood. What articles were inside the ark. What the two poles represent. What the rings that the two poles go through represent. Why it was on the inner chamber. The, the cherubim, the two cherubim that were hand-beaten gold, solid, that were sitting on top with their wings stretched out over the top, and that was that actual physical place and location where the presence of God would actually dwell. It was called the mercy seat. It's all prophetically symbolic, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about some of that prophetic symbolism. We're not gonna get into that tonight. But it means a lot, folks. There's a lot to learn here. But the bottom line is, the ark is outside the context. Of what God had had told the people, they had to build for his presence to be among them. I mean, it it wasn't just a little bit outside. It was way completely, 180 degrees opposite of what what it had been up to that point. Complete ignorance, disesteem, dishonor. Y'all see what I'm saying? So then we go to First Chronicles 15. David, after three months, and the, the ark actually talks about uh David takes the ark and he goes and puts it in a place of uh, this guy named Obed-Edom, the household. It stays there for three months and it said, Obed-Edom, guess what, was blessed. You know, his chickens laid more eggs, His his, his donkeys had more donkeys, and his goats had more goats, and his sheep had more sheep, and... I mean, everything about that, about that guy's house was blessed just three months of the presence of God being there. You know, that's, that's a story in itself and can preach for a while, but we're not going to talk about obed edom right now. But it stays there for three months, and I think, you know, that's said Greg again, but I believe at this point in time, after David came to a place in that, that six, uh, second Corinthians, or second Chronicles six, nine, where it says he became, came to a place of fearing God, he left and went back. To the word, he went back to seek the face of God and the counsel of God in what was the correct way to bring back the presence. So three months, three months passed by. And I think that's what he was doing. I believe he was probably fasting. I believe he was probably crawling on his hands and knees before the living God, crying out, asking for direction, going to the Levitical priesthood. Guess what? Going to the elders that he had left behind. When he went down there the first time and saying, boys, do you remember anything about something here that maybe I got off track of when we went down to go get God? Because us got consumed down there. Is there is there a possibility any of y'all remember anything that we might have done wrong here that would explain why this happened? And I guarantee you, there was probably some boys among their, some older men among their midst. that was like, Uh yeah, in fact, let me just open up the scroll here and we're going to read the law to you. And then they read to him out of the law about how he had ordained the Kohathites to actually be the clan of Levite. And only those people could leave, could could move the ark. And how the ark needed to be covered and how the fact that there needed to be two poles and it had to be borne on the shoulders of those men, not carried on, a, on a, some boards and big wheels, powered by oxen. And how they better consecrate themselves whenever they get around the presence of that ark because they could be consumed. And, I mean, I, you can just sit there and we could talk all night about the potentials of what was discussed, probably. But I bet David spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours with the elders of the Levites and trying to seek the counsel and the, the wisdom and the, the um, law of God in this. And how can I say that? Because he did it right the next time. And that's what we're going into now. First Corinthians 15, David consults scriptures. He realizes error. He does it right this time. So now we need to see, we, we can learn some extremely important steps now in doing it right when it comes to establish, when it comes to, to restoring the presence of God, seeing the presence of God increase in our midst. Even today in today's New Testament church, we can see so many things. Here's the first lesson. First Chronicles 15, 1. It says right off the bat, He prepared a place. He prepared Do you all see that? David prepared a place. And I've got to tell you, folks, if we desire a greater manifestation of the presence of God, if we desire a greater function by the unction, if we desire a greater anointing and outpouring of, of, of his power in our midst, we need to prepare. Is that right, Pastor C.J.? That's what we're trying to do from a leadership perspective. We're trying to seek the counsel of the living uh, God through the Holy Ghost and and the counsel of God, of the spirit among multiple uh, people, not just one person. Trying, We want to prepare. We want to prepare. You've got to prepare a place for it. You can't just go and get get God and bring him back and not have any place or context for him. (laughs) You know? I know that sounds very simplistic and raw, but that's just the truth of it. David prepared a place. That's the first thing right off the bat. I just, that's no coincidence that that's the first thing in that first verse in my mind as he does it the right way. The second thing is he gets the correct people this time to handle the ark. And to me, he gets the correct people from perspective of he goes and he finds Levites. Then he realizes it's the Cahoethite clan of the Levite. He goes against gets those boys. He said, "Boys, you you need to do whatever it takes to consecrate yourself. You got, we screwed up. You didn't do this last time. You didn't carry the ark. You're supposed to carry it, boys. You guys, you you get with your elders. You figure out what it is you're supposed to. This is the, this is the Greg version." You figure out what it is you're supposed to do boys to consecrate yourself to dedicate yourself to set yourself aside because you you and only you can move the ark can touch that those poles. And and, and it will we'll get it this time. So he gets the right people. Folks, it's no different today. We need the right people in the right places serving where God has anointed them. If we continue to tolerate misfit members Misjoined members. Don't hear me wrong, now hear me right. If we got fingers that are on the kneecap, the kneecaps that are on the, on the shoulder, we got misjointed members. Every single person in here is a member of the body. I don't care what you want to say about yourself. God created you who you are. He put the giftings and anointings inside of you to serve and make a supply as that member. I don't know who the fingers are and the hands and the toes and the legs and the shin bone and the knee bone and all this kind of stuff. But somebody's that. And if you don't like it, go talk to God because he's the one that made you that way. But don't go around trying to take your shin joint and manipulate and control and put it in a joint that don't belong. We don't want that. Because that's just as, that's just the same as the error in having the wrong people carry the ark. No different. We gotta get the right people doing the things that God's called them to do and anointed them to do. You know, and while I'm on the matter, Here's something that is a terrible thing, but it happens. People despise the anointing in people. They lightly esteem it or they even get jealous of it. Well, why would you get jealous or despise the anointing in people when it ain't nothing to do with them to begin with? God gave it to them for crying out loud. They got to do and be responsible for what God gave them to do. And if they're not doing it, they're disobedient. If they're not doing and fulfilling what God's called them to do, they're, they're out of joint. So if they're doing what God's called them to do, and that's another thing, you don't honor people for the anointing and giftings inside of them. Y'all hear me? Because those don't come from those people. They come from God. And that's what happens. People get their eyes on the gifts. They get their eyes on the things that people have to process. And the problem is a lot of leaders will take those things and leverage them to influence people. And the gifts and call are without repentance. And they'll pay a price one, I mean, they'll have to answer to God one day for it. Dear God, I don't want that to be me. Dear God, I don't want that to be me. You know, here's my position in it. Man, if if, if there's something, if, if I'm at a joint and I'm before God all the time about this, I want God, I want to be in the right place. I want to be making the supply God's made me make. If I'm not making the right supply, then move me. Make it stop. Shut the doors. I don't want to be doing the things wrong. You know, I don't want to be out of joint. I don't want to be making this a wrong supply, uh, the supply in the wrong place. We don't need fingers making their, leveraging their ability on the kneecap. We don't need shin bones leveraging their strength and ability in the chest. Do you all see what I'm saying? Have I, have I beat that horse down in the ground enough? So he got the right people to handle the ark. And this is a type of the corporate anointing because it was four people, folks. It was four people. God manifests himself greatest within the context of the corporate anointing. It's never the individual. God desires and will manifest because guess what? We only know each of us in part. We only prophesy in part. We only teach in part. We only sing in part. But when we get all them parts together... Y'all see, amen? The corporate anointing, the streams that are inside of us come together as a raging torrent. Hallelujah, of the power of the living God. It's always the corporate thing with God, not the individual. It's always the corporate in terms of his desired uh, context of great manifestation it's also prophetic symbolism. What is? The correct people handling the ark, having these four people. It's a prophetic symbolism of universal truth, the number four. It represents so many things, uh, the number of four. That God would manifest in people throughout the whole of earth, north, south, east, west, four directions. That God would be manifest throughout the year, fall, winter, summer, you know, what's the next one? <laughs> fall, spring. Fall, winter, spring, summer. Four seasons. That covers the whole year. Four, four, four. It's a, it's a number of, 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 of truth, of entire truth. From a prophetic standpoint. So number three, the priests and the Levites, they consecrated themselves. That means they set themselves apart for their duty as assigned in the law. As directed by the elders this time. Telling the younglings, you know, you you ain't Jedi's yet. You're Padawan. (laughs) You Padawans, this is what you're going to have to do, be a Jedi. (laughs) You know, sorry, I digress to Star Wars. And listen to this, man. This is awesome, man. They consecrate themselves for the work, and they appoint people from their ranks for particular service. David tells them to do that. He turns he's like, man, you Levites, you older guys, you know what you're supposed to do. You skilled people in these areas, you know what you're supposed to do. You get these people together, and you get people appointed and consecrated to fulfill these activities. And notice there that there were both musicians and singers. Musicians and singers. Praise God, musicians, right Todd? Hallelujah, brother. Musicians. They played lyres and they played harps and they played cymbals and there were trumpet players. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of loud instruments to me. Those aren't particularly soft voice or muted voiced instruments. A trumpet, I don't care how hard you can try, is not a muted voice instrument. It's pretty piercing. A symbol, no matter how hard you try, is not a muted voice instrument. It's pretty piercing. If you put anything in it at all. And then David had these guys, and in fact, the Bible even chronicles, and I want you all to listen to this, Todd, you in particular, there's this dude, man, his name was Kenaniah. Okay? And this, this, the scripture says that Kenaniah was skillful when it came to singing. See, we need people, we don't need just any people leading the worship in church. Not to say that that no one can't lead worship in the right context, but in church, if we've got skilled people, do you think God put skill in those people to do do that? Let's leave it to the skilled people, folks. Amen? And, And where's my scriptural basis for this? A guy named Kenaniah. You go look it up in the scripture. I'm not the one that wrote that in there. That's in there. And it says he was skillful in singing. He knew what it took. And it doesn't say it. And this is the Greg version of the Bible, thus saith Greg. Kenaniah probably went through the ranks and and said, had held tryouts and said, boys, we're going to have tryouts and see who can sing. See who's got a skill that God gave them to sing. This is the Greg version now, thus saith Greg. I'm always careful to characterize that. But it said, he put him in charge and said, you got to set these singers out. He didn't just go get anybody. He got people who could sing for crying out loud to do that ministry. Same for the musicians, people that could play uh, harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets. He didn't just get anybody. You know, David wasn't in there amongst them. He wasn't skilled, uh, you know, in particular, except for it, he was very skilled as a harp player. But I don't know if he carried the harp with him because he was a priest in the process. Said he dressed up in the priestly ephod and all that kind of stuff when they went down and got this. He might have had his harp. Number four, he involved the whole of Israel in the event, including the elders. And you can look at the scripture. The scripture says, including the elders. I don't know if you all see that later on down there. In 1 Corinthians 15, he involved the whole of Israel in the event this time, including the elders. They went rejoicing to restore the presence of God in their midst. And I mean, they went down there with the musicians laying out this awesome tapestry of, of foundation for then singing to come in on top of it. Hallelujah, right? Folks, singed the singers to come in and lay down the beautiful harmonies and the beautiful lyrics that, that they would sing as their hearts rejoiced to go and restore the presence of God in their midst. And a couple things here. Again, God intends his ministry and presence to be leveraged as a body-wide activity. I'm going to say that over and over and over again. And number two, you know, so many times we hear it quoted, Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony! It's like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, onto his robes. And if you really look at that, it's not just this nice, you know, platitude about harmony and unity. It's actually talking about harmony and unity precluding and being a a, a beginning step to the outpouring of the anointing for the priest to do his work. Because Aaron was the priest. And what do priests do? They stand in the gap between people and God. They serve in the areas of ministry, in service between men and, and, and God. They are the intercessors, folks. They are the people that pull heaven down to earth. And every single one of you are a part of the royal priesthood. Every single one. And if you, if we want the anointing to hit us to the point that we will Discharge prevailing prayer in our midst, we've got to have unity. That's the, that and only then, then and only then is when the anointing is released. The anointing as the high priest, the anointing as the, the, the one who is the principal to stand in those, those areas of ministry. That's really to me what that scripture means if you want to take it right on down. It's like the fine oil on the head. Well, oil is representative of the anointing. Coming down on his head, running, but it doesn't just stop at Jesus. Jesus is the head, right? Of the church. It says it runs down his beard and then down onto his robes, down to the hem of his garment. That represents the fullness of the covering of the body. So it's not just one part, it's the, that anointing covers the full, the complete body of Christ. Hallelujah. That's available for us. The anointing is God's ability to help you, to, to God's ability in your inability. That's the anointing. It's God's ability in your inability. It's God's uh, grace and power to come in and, and allow you to do things you can't do of your own strength. That's what the anointing does. Hallelujah. In verse 5 here. Omid, is, 3, is 3.50, is that the right time? Okay. That clock back there that's counting down says I got 3 minutes and 42 seconds and 41 and 40 and 39. He sacrifices. As David goes down, I brought this out last week, but I've got to bring this out again. David goes down, and when he retrieves the ark this time, as they get the ark and the priests carry it this time, praise God, they're carrying it. And it says that, that they take sacrifices down with them. They take bulls and they take sheep. And it says that they made that sacrifice. And it says they took six steps and made a blood sacrifice. They took six steps and... And made a blood sacrifice. They took six steps and they made a blood sacrifice. And there is such a a tremendous prophetic symbolism in that. Because what this represents, folks, is all the way in their procession as they're restoring the presence of God in their midst, as they are conducting and fulfilling the ministry that in the correct order, the right people in the right places, the people applying the the gifts and the talents that God has created them to apply in the right context, the the whole time they are carrying it to the extent they can with God's blood, with a blood trail covering their hind parts. And today, in today's New Testament church, whose blood is that? That's Jesus Christ, folks. Because everything we do in ministry starts and continues in the the history with the blood of Christ covering our tracks. Hallelujah. That's a tremendous prophetic symbolism. It's sacrifice for sin, and it says that he once and for all offered his blood. No longer does it have to have, be offered once a year. It's once and for all he offered his blood. And that blood covers us in, as, as, as born-again children of God. Hallelujah. So that Jesus, that blood of Jesus covering our past, it's forgiveness, it's righteousness. That's what that blood represents. And Taylor, to answer your questions from last week, theologians say 10 kilometers. That's about six, a little over six miles was the distance they had to cover from Oed Edom's house up to Mount Zion. That's what a lot of theologians say. That's a long time to take six steps and sacrifice, six steps and sacrifice, six steps and sacrifice. Do you think that David feared the Lord? Do you think the people in the procession that was with him had an honor and esteem for God? If they're going through six steps in a sacrifice, six steps in sacrifice, I guarantee you, man, they changed their way. That's what that says to me. They came to a place that they changed their way. And the last thing is, as I as the minute counts down to the end of my abilities here, my time, David and the whole of Israel bring the ark into the city. David's wife, Michael, she sits in the window. She didn't go with the procession, folks. That's a picture of what's painted here. We have someone staying behind because they didn't honor the, the concept of what was happening. They didn't care for what the leader was telling them, what God was telling him we needed to do. And the bottom line is we see that Michael despised David as he came before her and leading the procession in basically his underwear. In his in his hands, man, he's out there dancing around in his hands as the king and really a priest and and it, you know before the people, bringing the presence of the living God back to and restoring it because he had done it right this time, folks. He had something to be really happy about and shout about, and he's bringing it back in. And Michael's sitting up in the window and she looks down, despises. That means she lightly esteemed. She dishonored him for what he was doing. She looked at the natural and not anything else. And it says that she goes down as they have an interaction. She declares her discontent with David and what he was doing. And I don't have to talk about the gory detail of that. There's a lot of lesson in this to be learned. And the bottom line is when she cut him down, she cut herself off. She despised him. She got despised. They that honor me, I will honor. They that despise me, I will lightly esteem. That's what God was saying to Samuel or to Eli Samuel. So we need to be careful regarding our criticality of people's worship. You can cut yourself off from fruitfulness. This is a very important thing, folks. People are, they just lightly esteem how people worship and how they approach God. Be very careful about how you judge people in their worship. When it comes right down to, I mean, if they're jumping and hooping and hollering, you know, I mean, sure, yeah, there might be some flesh involved or whatever, but I'm not going to stand in place of a judgment and say that that, that that person doesn't have a right to, to, to worship God that way. You don't know what their sin cost them. I mean, you don't, you don't know what their praise cost them. You don't know the blood that stands behind them to cover the things that happened in their life. Do you all see that? Be very careful because what happened to her is is it said she became barren. And I don't know so much that necessarily God struck her with barrenness as it was that David didn't have sexual relations with her again after that because of that dishonor, folks. So you don't want to, you don't be critical of that. Be very careful about that. You don't know what their praise cost them. And I can just give you one last scripture and this is it, Luke seven forty-seven. Those that have been forgiven much, love much. Those that have been forgiven, love li- little, love little. And I gotta tell you, David had a lot in his life that, that he related to God in terms of, of his love for him. And he was expressing it. And where there's a lot of people in our midst that do that. Praise God. Hallelujah. Okay, we're finished up. Let's just say the prayer and thank God for the word. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Ghost, who's the teacher, Holy Spirit. I just thank you for taking this word and just, bringing diverse revelation and and understanding and for for, for letting it be an implanted and grafted seed, Father, in the midst of their soul that brings salvation, Father, to that soul. In the name of Jesus, and we give you the glory. Amen.